Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib, uh, and joined by a good friend and Tennis with an Accent contributor, tennis historian Merth Ertunga. And uh, whenever Merth is here, you know, I come prepared to ask some questions because uh, he's definitely uh, lived the sport through a lens of a fan and knows a lot. And um, anyone who listens to these podcasts has uh, had the privilege of listening to Mert. So on that note, let me bring Mert in and uh, we can talk more World Tour Finals, which is just less than a few days away. Hey, Mert. Sakib, always delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. Come on, it's your podcast. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, uh, the big show is away. Uh, the draw was announced today. Rafa Nadal is... Uh, is, as far as we know, he's still in the in the draw. He's going to be testing his service motion in a couple of days. A uh, lot of players are coming with momentum. Uh, Djokovic looked, you know, back to his to his absolute best last week in in Bercy. Roger Federer, you know, looked pretty sharp himself in Basel. Made a right move not to play. Daniel Medvedev has lost a match that was big news before a final. And then, you know, this this field has a lot of players who have the ability to to cause some. To cause some damage, if not win the whole thing. But Mert, before we arrive here, I mean, with the opportunity of uh, you here, let's uh, let's talk about the significance and evolution of this event. What this event has meant uh, to you as a fan and how an observer of the sport. Because to me, uh, you know, again as a disclaimer, this event has meant a lot because I've sped, uh, said repeatedly that um, when we were following tennis uh, through newspapers and some limited TV matches in India. Uh, this season part was very alive. Lendl was a dominant force from my earliest memory. Becker uh, was, was my, one of my favorite players. He reigned supreme in these tournaments. He is a larger-than-life presence in indoor in Germany. Sampras was as dominant an indoor player uh, there ever was. Even Isevich was there. So this tournament and this the, the, the year end after uh, the year into the season had so much more significance like this day and age, it's all about the majors. The season does lose some steam after the U.S. Open, and there has been calls by even the likes of McIndoe to you know to shorten the season. But if you go maybe 15, 20 years ago, uh, this part of the season was very significant. Uh, if you agree with me, shed some light. If you disagree with me, that's still very good because we want to uh, keep this conversation very honest for some of the listeners, you know, who are maybe slightly younger or maybe don't remember some of those eras. Uh, as we, you know, try to bring the World Tour Finals, uh, you know, a historical reference in this podcast. No, you are. I agree with you, Saki. In fact, I'm going to go a step or two further than you because uh, uh, ATP Tour Finals, and it was, uh, you know, played under different names throughout history. But ATP Tour Finals was definitely the fourth uh, final point to the fourth part of the season. In other words, just like we have, you know, a clay court season and it, and it uh, comes to a uh, it crescendos into French Open, and then we have a grass court season that uh, culminates in uh, at Wimbledon, and hard court season finishing up with the U.S. Open, and then you have the you had the indoor season, and that culminated with uh, with ATP Tour Finals, which was considered an absolute monster of a tournament for many many years. And th- this is not to say that it is not considered a, an extremely important tournament now. It is, and I'll get to it in a minute. But just just for just for the listeners to know that for two decades, in 1970s and 1980s, uh, ATP uh, uh, Tour Finals, you know, it was called, uh, it started in 19, but in 1970s and 80s, it was considered easily uh, at the same level, I would say at the same level of majors for many. In fact, 
perhaps even more important than one or two majors because you would you would not have any players miss the the uh, the, the end of the year Masters Championships, whereas you would have players skip the majors in in uh, in seventies and eighties, you know, depending on their travel schedule or or surface preferences. But nobody wanted to miss the year-ending championships. It was an honor to be there, so it was definitely considered. Uh, right up there. It was considered far more important than the way we see right now the ATP 1000s. Let's put it this way. And, and Mert, uh, wasn't uh, the Australian Open played around the Christmas time? That also probably added for a lot of Europeans and North Americans to not make the trip, right? That kind of... Of course. Of yeah. course, yes. The, 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 there's also that kind of... Well, you know, Australian Open was problematic from in the 1970s and 80s because, because of various reasons, one of them being that. But uh, but it started... ATP... Uh, Tour finals started in 1970, and it was called uh, uh, Masters Grand Prix from 1970 to 1989, and it was played under Masters Grand Prix. And then 1990 to to, to uh, in the 1990s, it was called ATP World Tour Finals. Then in the 2000s, it became Tennis Masters Cup, and it, from 2009 to today, now it's called ATP World Tour Finals. But it's the same tournament; it's the year-ending championships. Of course, uh, the title of the tournament on any given year might may have been different due to the name sponsorship. For example, uh, in late 1970s, there was one called Colgate Palmolive Masters, and then there was Nabisco Masters. So yeah, the, you that, know, the one next... I, that one I remember. That was uh, the time exactly. I started. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in 1970, it was always held on hard courts. In 1974, it was held once on grass courts, the only time. And then in 2003 and 2004... It was on it was held on hard courts, but outdoors. But otherwise, it's been uh, for 99.5 percent of the time, I guess it's been uh, it's been held on indoor hard courts. And uh, when it first started in 1970 and 71, it was a straightforward round robin tournament, no semifinals and finals, and all matches were were played two out of three sets. In fact, in that first year in 1970, Stan Smith and Rod Laver finished both with four and one records. But Smith won the title because he defeated Labor in their head-to-head match in the, in, in the, in the round robin. And then in 1971, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1971, Nastasi went on to win the trophy uh, in the round robin. And then in 1972, they switched to the format that we now know. And throughout the 70s, there's some switching back and forth between semifinals and finals being played two out of three or three out of five. But the format of having round robins and then having the semifinals and finals with the top four, top two players from each group starts in 1972. And then starting with the 1980 tournament, they decisively switched to playing only the final match best out of five. And the rest is played two out of three. And it stayed that way all the way to 2008 uh, when the final match also got reduced to two out of three sets, the format that's, that, that still continues today. And, uh, and, you know, that, that probably had that switch to two out of three sets in 2008 probably relates a little bit to, uh, to, to the esteem of the tournament going down over the years. It, you know, that can play into, into that topic that probably we should touch on. For example, uh, uh, I, I will tell you this. It, it, it was for sure considered the biggest title in men's tennis behind the majors in 70s and 80s, 
And uh, at least by the players themselves, you would have, again, players skipping a major or two here and there, but they would all be present for the year ending. And I'll give you an example, an anecdote. Um, after Borg beat McEnroe in 1979 in the semifinals, and it was a highly controversial match, we can talk, we can talk more in detail for that, but Borg was asked afterwards um, how he felt about, his, about defeating his top two challengers, Connors and McEnroe, in that, because he beat Connors in the round robin, 7-6 in the third, and then he beat McEnroe in that match, 7-6 in the third also. And Borg said that he still had a tremendous hurdle in front of him, and that hurdle was actually Vitas Gerolaitis in the finals. And as you know, Borg, Borg was uh, largely, un- I mean, he was undefeated against Gerolaitis. I can't remember their head-to-head record, but it was something ridiculous. And uh, he never lost to Gerolaitis, but he still considered that a big hurdle. And when asked why, because he said he had not won Masters yet at the time. In 1979, he didn't have a year-ending Masters Championship title. And he went on to say, I have Roland Garros, I have Wimbledon, I helped Sweden to a Davis Cup title, I won Rome, and I have only two goals left, U.S. Open and Masters. And he didn't even mention Australian Open. Yeah. So to, to make a lo- to make a long story short, that's what you know. That's how important the year-ending championships were considered in the, in in the, in those years. And then and then throughout the 1990s and most of 2000s, the demarcation between ATP finals and majors in terms of significance became more distinct, but it was still considered as the most revered titles right behind the majors. Starting with the 2008 tournament, when the finals uh, when the finals got reduced to two out of three sets, also, and the concept of the big three started invading the tennis discourse from that point forward, and the push for the ATP 1000 titles due to their lucrative potential amplified. Because of all those reasons, I would say that uh, the line between ATP finals and an ATP 1000 title has now become blurry. But nonetheless, without a doubt, it's a coveted title that players who have them in their resume can cherish throughout their, uh, throughout their lives. And to last but not the least, you're, last, you're less likely to remain an unknown as time moves forward if you have an ATP finals title at the end of the year and no other big titles than if you have an ATP 1000 title and no other big titles. And it only makes sense because if you want an ATP finals title, that is because you were a pretty damn good player to begin with, just so you could make it to the tournament. Uh, whereas that's not the case necessarily for ATP 1000 title. Uh, let's look at uh, Dimitrov, for example. Dimitrov has one ATP 1000 title, and he has one ATP finals title. And I, and I would speculate that he considers his ATP finals trophy more valuable than the one he won in Cincinnati. Yeah, I think very well said. Uh, the ATP uh, World Tour Finals or the Nabisco Masters that was known or the ATP World Championships in Frankfurt, the name has changed over the years. Yeah, but there was a special feel, like you said. Uh, and I'm not saying that today it's not like a big achievement. It's still ATP's biggest event. It's a showcase event. But with the, you know, the big three and even Murray and Wawrinka winning majors, uh, this tournament is, uh, according to many, maybe fifth or the sixth best uh, tournament maybe after Indian Wells, uh, but it's you're right, uh, more or less, it's more of an equal uh, by many accounts. If we look at Twitter, where you know most of the tennis discussion uh, takes place, uh, the prestige, uh, if not taken a blow, has uh, definitely distanced itself, like you said, from the tournament's glorious past when the majors were viewed differently. 
uh, at the tail end of 70s or even the beginning of 80s when Australian Open was still in Kooyong and not played at Flinders Park. Uh, so let me just, you know, uh, uh, climb back with uh, you in, in time and especially with your memories uh, and some of the memorable matches you witnessed uh, back in the day. And uh, uh, and how much of uh, that you associate with a very solid indoor season because now indoor is an afterthought. Uh, after US Open, they're like, uh, there is like some prestigious events in Bercy uh, and then lead up uh, in Basel and Vienna. But it's not like the indoor season... The one even I remember from the 90s, it started, it used to start from Sydney indoors in Australia, then go to Tokyo indoors, and then action moved to Europe. So uh, bring out some of the matches, uh, Mert, I mean, over the years, if, uh, not from every year, but some of the standout matches from the 70s and 80s uh, that just were like, you know, that produced some scintillating tennis, and it just stayed with you. Well, uh, there are, of course, um, um probably two or three that really, really stand out from the rest. And, and I'll get to those. But just to, just to reiterate uh, the importance of, uh, of, of the ATP Tour Finals, which was, you know, back in the 70s and 80s called Masters Grand Prix Tournament, um, I'll bring up two matches. Uh, you know, and the consequences of these matches in the year-ending championships carried over. In other words, they had long-term consequences. There was a 1975 incident between Ilya Nastasi and Arthur Ashe. The match was played in Stockholm. It was a group match, actually, uh, in 1975. And, and uh, Ilya Nastasi won the first set. Arthur Ashe came easily, actually, he won the first set. Arthur Ashe came back and won the second set 7-5. And then in the third set, Ashe is leading 4-1. And I believe he's up love 40 on, uh, on Nastasi's serve, so about to go up 5-1. And Nastasi plays all kinds of antics, uh, is about to serve, doesn't serve, asks Arthur Ashe if he's ready, tells, asks the referee, are you ready? And then, you know, some, some spectators say something to him, he won't serve, and he just plays clown for a good minute or so. And Arthur Ashe got mad and left the court. In other words, he's, he's up, he just, he just packed up his rackets and left. Hmm. And, 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 and later, you know, he's... He, he's, he, the line apparently was that he, as he's leaving, he said to the referee, I don't care. I'd rather be disqualified than lose my self-esteem. Maybe he, would, he was that mad with, uh, with Nastasi's uh, antics. And, uh, and what, what happened, here's the funny thing. A decision was taken late at night. They, they had hours of deliberation. And because of pressure of what, how, what, how Nastasi behaved, they could not bring themselves to call Nastasi the winner of that match. And I'm sure there was some some pressure from uh, from the players' association, the, the you know the American side too, and they actually declared Arthur Ashe the winner of that match, believe it or not. And uh, what and what is even more ironic is that uh, Nastasi went on to win, went on to win the tournament, completely dominating Vilas in the semis and Borg in the finals in straight sets. And be, and the following year in 1976, the code of conduct for play, for the players was enacted, and. Um, and there are many anecdotes that, that I can give references to that say that, you know, Anastasi's behavior in that 1975 match against Arthur Ashe had a lot to do with that, if, if, if anything at all. So that's, you know, that's, that's a quite uh, significant incident. And then in 1979, there's another incident, incident when Borg is playing McEnroe in the semifinals. And uh, he wins the first set, Borg wins the first set. And in the second set tiebreaker, McEnroe, go, it, it, the score is three all. And McEnroe hits a shot to the baseline that Bork sees out. I was watching that match too, and I thought it was out too. And um, 
but the referee didn't call it. And Borg, who never gets mad, I, I know many of the listeners were not even alive or don't remember Bjorn Borg play. But for those that do, you, 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 this will bring back a quick memory. Bjorn Borg was famous for his ice, ice-like uh, demeanor on the court. He he never smiled. He never got mad. He never, you know, he never showed any kind of emotion on the court. He was he would be, that's why he was called Ice Borg. And this is a, a, a stunning moment when Borg actually goes up to the referee and starts arguing with him or asking him why is that ball not called out. And guess what? He gets two point penalties in a row for, for delaying the game. So from 4-3 down in tiebreaker, he goes down 6-3 in the tiebreaker. And he finally goes back out to play and he loses the tiebreaker. And it was such a stunning moment in, the, in tennis history to, to see Borg be the victim of the new point penalty system that just got reinstated a few months before. And he was the first victim out of all people when everyone was expecting someone else to be to to be it and uh but uh he's but get, but guess what Bjorn Borg still came back and won that match in other words he recovered from that disappointment and he won that match in the third set so mm. um so that's another important incident unforgettable incident to to so to say so to speak now of course these were not particularly fantastic matches to, to answer your question directly in my opinion the two best matches that uh that uh, that I've seen were the Boris Becker Ivan Lendl 1988 and Sampras Becker 1996. Mm. Becker Becker lost both matches. As a as a huge Boris Becker fan, I mean, uh, yes. the 96 match just uh, stayed with me for the longest of times, and uh, the 88 match. You're right. Uh, both yeah. match and also had sim- very uh, you know weird similarity. Both match had like uh, the last rally was a very long. I think 36 or 38 shot rally, and I believe the 88 one ended with a net cord falling on yes. Lendl's side and and Becker raising uh, his his arms and and Becker actually won that match. I don't, uh, yeah, I correct myself. Becker won that match. Yeah. He, he hit a he hit a backhand drive yeah. and it hit the net and dropped over. And you're right, it was 33rd or 34th point. It was six five point in the tiebreaker of the fifth set. Mm-hmm. And Ivan Lendl. Uh, the, the, and Lendl had a ton of chances to win the second set. He was up. He was up a break more than once. He was up a break in the fifth set, and uh, Becker just. Uh, that's probably one of the best moments in Becker's career. I, I, you know, if you ask Boris, he, he might he might say that the, that that victory ranks right behind the ones uh, in Wimbledon. And, and, and you're, you're so right. That's a game changer, and that's why I want to bring this conversation that we have. On a daily basis, with you know, with Andrew, uh, Matt, Susie, and you know, and, and this is a rightful defini- definition because uh, the focus has been on the majors. But you, you are right. This was just such a huge win for Becker because that year, Willander had a breakout year. He won all three majors. Lendl was, uh, you know, the best player coming in. Uh, did not win any major, and then uh, the '88 Wimbledon was won by Edberg. So it was a Swedish Slam. And uh, Lendl and Becker both were playing for something big. And Becker hadn't won anything since 86 Wimbledon as far as majors go. And this one was uh, a big one for him. He beat Belander, I believe, in three sets in the round-robin match and then got the better of Lendl uh, at the Madison Square Garden finale. So let, let, let's, let's mention also that, it was it, again, it was a consequential match. Boris Becker went on to went on a tear after that uh, for about uh, 10 or 12 months, if I, if I remember correctly. I think you are absolutely right there, but I was also going to say respectfully disagree. Uh, what my recollection is, you're right. I mean, I'm not questioning. It did play. 89 was his best year. But uh, 
like what we had with Zverev last year, we all expected him to create like a new dimension to the tour and just, you know, go deep in majors after winning London. It didn't happen. And a lot of times that kind of does, uh, it doesn't take the title away from him, but it just still leaves a question mark hanging. When will Zverev's time come? But in my recollection of how the previous eras folded, even if Becker didn't win 89, uh, the success he had, the 88 Masters was still one of the biggest titles. And I was going to use the 92 For season sure. as an example. When Becker didn't have a great 93, but that 92 win over Courier in his hometown in Germany, again, has to be one of the most defining moments of his career. And he won the title on his birthday. We'll get to that because I have some data of my own that I want to uh, share with you. But the three men we talked about in these finals, uh, Sampras, Becker, Lendl, in no order, to me, along with Federer and Djokovic, these are the five greatest indoor players I've seen. And uh, if you have a different list, uh, throw some light. If you agree uh, with the same uh, list that I have, do you want to rank them? I know it's kind of tough, but these are the five best indoor players that I would put there in the honorable mention as Goran Ivanisevic if he was on. Yes, let's talk about I, I cannot agree with you more. I cannot agree with you more. And, and, and even, even, I mean, in Lendl, you know, in 1981... He won the Master Series, and this is when he was really young. That's how good he was indoors. And, uh, you know, he did that, by the way, that's another memorable match, maybe not at the level of 88 and 96, but he defeated Gerolitis 1981 in five sets, coming back from a match point down in the third set. And, you know, he was getting dominated by Gerolitis in the same way that he was getting dominated by McEnroe at the French Open in 1984 for two sets. And in this case, Gerolitis even had a match point in the third set. And, and, and um, Lendl saved it. Gerolitis got a little bit apprehensive on that match point, didn't approach when he needed to. Lendl saved it, won that third set in tiebreaker, and came back and won. And it all, that match also features one of Lendl's famous, uh, you know, when, when Lendl had an easy passing shot with his opponent at the net, he sometimes went straight at his opponent's face. Hmm. Uh, he, he, was, yeah, he was known for it. And there's, a, there's a point in the fifth set where he hits, uh, he gets... Uh, Gerolitis on his forehead pretty hard and uh but but that was also you know another great match but yes uh, you know not it's still not at the level of the Boris Becker Ivan Lendl and the two Becker matches that we've been talking about in 1992. Yeah the Becker Sampras match again uh, was pretty huge and I'm sure a lot of listeners uh you know who who have watched that match will rank that as one of the all-time great matches not even just indoor matches that was that match had a heavyweight fight Becker served didn't get broken till the uh, till the very end, I think, uh, at four all in the fifth set, and then Sampras served it out. So Becker was so dominant, had beaten Pete Sampras in the round robin, 6-3-7-6. Becker was also coming off a five-set win at a Masters 1000 equivalent in Stuttgart, which was a Masters Super 9 event. So he had everything going for him. He had a heartbreaking uh, result at Wimbledon win against Neville Godwin of South Africa. He hurt his wrist, and Richard Kreitschek goes on to win Wimbledon. I always think as a Becker fan, maybe that was the fourth title that never happened because Sampras was gone, and who knows? Uh, Becker's path to the final was pretty clear with Mal Washington and Todd Martin, but you know you can't dwell in the, dwell in the past. So, but as far as consequential, even in the current context of 96, not what happened in 97, I think that tournament had so much riding for Becker. You know, he was always considered Sampras's equal. I think their career is six all or seven all indoors. All seven Becker's win against Pete has come indoor and on grass and outdoor hard courts and clay. He's, I think, six and oh, or oh and six against Sampras. So that match, like Murray said, is absolute classic. We've seen so many highlights every time the ATP Tour final rolls around. ATP uh, 
website i think promotes that match as one of its all-time classics uh, it's in it's in my it's in my personal uh, top 10 list of all all-time matches that i've ever seen yeah best, I mean, best all-time exactly. sampras, sampras becker 1996 uh, so let me ask you about john McEnroe. his name didn't come up uh, in the five or six best plays we talked about how would you rate his indoor uh, provinces i mean I know he was pretty good at indoors, but I didn't see. I've only seen highlights. Uh, when he was finishing his career, we didn't get the indoor matches live, and he really didn't make the Masters finals when I started getting live matches for the ATP finals. So where would you rate Johnny Mack? I know he has a great record on carpet. Uh, uh, just throw some light there. Uh, no, I would rate uh, Johnny Mack pretty high, but uh, I would not rate his indoor prowess higher than his, his grass court or, uh, or uh, hard court prowess. He was uh, he was a phenomenal player on on grass courts or on hard courts also. So it's it's not one of these things where he all of a sudden brought it uh, brought it up to a five star level on 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 indoors. That he not that he didn't bring it up to a five star level outdoors, but uh, the, the players that we just talked about, I believe, can day in and day out bring it to a five star level uh, indoors. And, uh, Johnny Mac didn't do that. He had, he had some off indoor, uh, indoor tournaments. I can't, uh, I would have to go back and look at the, look at the scores in some of the tournaments, but, uh, but I know that he did not have a dominating record against his top rivals indoors, even though, you know, some of them were, uh, were, uh, were not necessarily as much attackers as he was in terms of game style. I mean, so uh, as someone who's played the sport yourself and you've coached at the level and you've, you know, played Davis cup, uh, talk about indoor tennis. I mean, uh, for us amateurs, uh, whenever I play indoor during the winter season, you know, there, there are no elements. The serve percentage goes slightly high, even for uh, players like myself. And uh, I enjoy playing indoors because there are no elements. But uh, what is according to you that makes such a a great indoor player? I mean, what's what what separates from these five six names that we have talked about? from their peers and opponents in their respective eras. Why uh, indoor tennis is a different barometer? Is it all about power? Is it about timing? Is it about just bludgeoning the ball? What are the skills uh, that I, separates I, these guys? Uh, Sakib, I would, I would place the serve at a very high level all by itself. It makes a l- tremendous difference on the serve when you're serving. And, 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 and we just talked about McEnroe, right? Not being, not being necessarily as dominant as these other names are indoors. McEnroe didn't have a booming serve. Landel did. Boris Becker did. Sampras did. So you see, the, the, these players have had, uh, had very, very big first serves. And when you're serving indoors, no wind, a good uh, background to look up to when you're looking at the ball toss because there's a ceiling you can get you can get your toss to be to become very consistent over a match over the you know if you're going to serve 100 150 serves over the course of a match or more or less it just becomes so much clear and you can keep tossing to the exact same spot over and over again and 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 then your shoulder rotation your 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 leg push everything else so you, you start uh, gauging it up as the match moves forward and that's why sometimes some players will start serving even better second set third set than they did in the first set so in my in my opinion the serve makes the big difference indoors the fact that there is no wind also is a, is a is a good one for attackers because most attackers need to time the ball correctly they they like to take the ball early or they have to move to the net and hit floating balls in the air 
and you do not want wind to be moving that ball around when you're running for a floating ball or or you don't want the ball, the, the the wind to move the the ball around when you're tossing it up if you have a high ball toss like Ivan Lendl did you know you definitely are at an advantage indoors versus outdoors so yes i, I would say that these are the main differences but i would i would keep going back to the serve uh, being the biggest difference it makes a big difference for a big server so when they get to serve indoors. So the carpet, right, which was used as a big surface indoors, I think in late 80s and maybe even early 90s, uh, it's supposedly low bouncing. So uh, low bouncing, super fast, uh, and don't get then don't don't scratch your knee. Don't get your knee scratched on it. Mm-hmm. It'll bleed. It'll bleed forever. So but how, yes. So how much of the net net play uh, was uh, was such an important aspect of anyone's toolkit? I know it started well, with serve, but. Uh, uh, let's talk about the Guy Forget and Edberg, who were pretty good at net, but uh, they were not. I mean, they were phenomenal indoor players, but again, they were not as good as Sampras and Becker, and maybe even Ivanisevic. Yeah, I'd go for Edberg. I'd go back to the serve. Uh, Edberg didn't have a booming serve; he just placed it well. He had a good first serve percentage. His prowess was was more in his net skills more than his serve. But uh, Forget, on the other hand, did have a pretty good serve. Uh, I believe that on carpet, uh, Sakib, it favors the car- carpet indoor courts, in my opinion, is the fastest possible surface other than the ridiculous parquet that uh, a couple of Davis Cup players, a couple of Davis Cup matches were played on back mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s. I mean, indoor carpet is super fast. The, the ball does not slow down. When, when, even when you hit a drop shot, that backspin that you put on the ball has very little effect. In other words, the ball will bounce like if you didn't put that backspin on it. So, it, so you may want a drop shot, a lower bouncing drop shot, not a high bouncing that you hope is going to bounce back. It's not going to work. So the, 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 the carpet in general favored any type of attacking player, whereas an a, a indoor hard court, uh, indoor fast court, in my, case, in my opinion, showcases the serve more than... Uh, than uh, than volleys or any other uh, aspect of the attacking game. Although it does, don't get me wrong, it does, but carpet does more. So overall, the indoor conditions, both carpet and hardcourt, favor an Ivan Lendl, who had a great, who's basically the father of the one-two punch, serve big and then unleash that big forehand, compared to uh, some of the attacking players who had great serves but not booming serves, like the Edberg and the Pat Cash and you know everybody who could volley were seen as attacking players but they could be passed. So is that a correct notion that a one-two punch, as long as it's followed by a big serve, is a more potent uh, way to succeed, you know, or or was a way to succeed in in that particular era in the late 80s and early 90s? Yes, well, but you just mentioned the the guy who perhaps may have invented the one-two punch in the sense that we we know it in modern tennis today, Ivan Lendl, uh, with with his forehand. He'd He'd serve a big serve, he'd get that weaker return, and he'd put his forehand away. He did that on every surface. In other words, this was not something that he specifically put, put on display on, on, on fast surfaces. So, yes, he, he, had, he had that one skill mastered, and it worked to his favor in, 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 in indoor tournaments. But I agree with you that uh, Lendl was not a, a serving volleyer by nature, by any means. Uh, he was more of a baseline power hitter. So, therefore, on carpet, the fact that he has so much success on carpet says a lot for the guy's skills. Hmm. So, let's... Uh... Let's talk more about this, but I have a you know curious, curious observation here because the other two best players uh, that we mentioned indoors are Federer and Djokovic. And uh, as attacking as Federer is, he comes to a net, but for the most part of his illustrious career, he also played 
his indoor tennis from the baseline. So all, we all know tennis has changed, but even indoors. So you, you, where would you rank Djokovic's success? Because his serve has been, you know, on fire lately. Ryan Harrison talked about a serve that you know he has the most underrated second serve. Doesn't give you much, you know. So where do you see his success indoors? What are what are some of the shots that we see? But how do you break down his success indoors? Well, this is where you have to uh, you have to basically um, uh, face the fact that um, that J- Novak Djokovic is an exceptional player because he's able to do indoors what uh, something with his type of game that many other pl- many other players are not able to. You know, most ba- most players that that uh, base their game on a pa- on a on a baseline game. And Djokovic, one of Djokovic's best uh, skills is his defensive game, his ability to get balls back that you would never expect other players to get back. He gets them back and he counter punches. He's got a great return. I mean, his return is, a, is actually an offensive weapon. And, and, uh, and his serve, although his serve has gotten better, I would not consider his serve as, as his best feature. So, so the fact that he's able to uh, master indoor courts this much with his style of game is phenomenal. Uh, he's, he's, he's in a class by himself in this case, in my opinion. So he's an exception and, to the rule. Yes, he's a bit of an exception to the rule. I mean, he's, uh, you know, because uh, uh, on the one hand, we can, we can talk about his serve being great now, but his serve wasn't always great. You know, in, in, when, when, for example, the one year, 2011, that, uh, that uh, you know, we always talk about what a great year that was for Djokovic, his serve was almost a liability in those years. Now it's, a, it, it's an asset. You know, he, he wins a ton of points from his serve. But Djokovic didn't just start winning... Uh, um, ATP Tour Finals. He's been winning them for more than... 10. What, when was his first? 2008? I believe Is that so. When he won? Yep. Yeah, he won his first in 2008. So he's been, he's been doing this on, uh, for, for a long time. And um, in, then I think he won it two or three years in a row, maybe four in, in the mid-2010s. So you know, you know, to say that Djokovic's serve is a factor in his success in... Um, in, the, in ATP Tour Finals, I would disagree with that. Is it a factor? Sure, it is a factor. But it is not the main reason why he's winning. He's winning because he's got explosive first step on the returns. He can nail the return for a winner as an offensive shot. So in a game that where you consider the server having an advantage, he actually has the advantage as the returner. And, and he's, able to, um, you know, he's able to run down balls that nobody else, nobody else is, is able to do. So I would I would call Djokovic an exception to the rule. Thus, perhaps put him in a class by himself in the, in in this in this situation. Hmm. But 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 also I have to you have to again I have to go back to this uh, to the distinction here. You know, from 2008 forward, the the finals are played two out of three instead of three out of five. So I you know I that that is not to say Djokovic might not have won five if not more. He might have won, you know, just as many, if not more. But it's hard to compare uh, a three out of five accomplishment in the years before with the accomplishments of today. I mean, you know, would Zverev have won the final if it was three out of five? I don't know. You know, you have to you have to take all these things into consideration. Imagine, Sakib, to make the to make my point clear here. Imagine that majors all of a sudden starting 2020 went to two out of three, all the way through in men's. Now, are we going to consider 2020's accomplishments in major 
in the same basket as the the, the majors accomplishments in the, you know previously in 2010 2000 and in history we probably cannot so you know the the fact that uh, it it goes down to two out of three sets brings a little bit of a different uh, flavor to uh, to comparisons not not to the accomplishment itself Djokovic's mm. accomplishments is still phenomenal but it's hard to compare you know I can't really say what would have been the situation you know I'm looking at those matches we just mentioned you know Sampras Becker Boris Becker Ivan Lendl Lendl Garolitis in 1981 you know those are those are five sets of super high level tennis continuously and uh, and, and it's just hard to 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 compare a two out of three set match to that and say well this is a better accomplishment or that one's a worse accomplishment it's yeah. hard to it's hard to do that but 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 is is Djokovic a phenomenal indoor player? Yes, he is, and I do think he's in a class by himself because of the game style distinction that I mentioned. And it's a pity, like uh, when we were prepping for the podcast, talking about uh, the potential topics here. Uh, it's a pity that we'll never see a full flight Federer versus a full flight Djokovic going best of five indoors because those two are absolutely the two best standout players uh, in the indoor arena. For sure, for sure, and it would be and it would be a great match regardless. And if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm correct, uh, Djokovic has an edge over over Federer uh, in 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 matches. But uh, nonetheless, you know, when when the when these two players play each other, we we just have uh, this the stand the quality of the tennis is quite high most of the time. And uh, how great would it be to see them play three out of five in a final? You know, they they've already played in in uh, three finals, and um, and all of them went. Uh, you know, all of them were two out of three sets. Hmm. So. You know. All right, let's uh, let's tap back in time and let's uh, bring some of the other information from the previous uh, World Tour finals. And we've talked about the potential two or three best finals, then the five or six most dominant indoor players. Then also, I think, uh, Ivan Lendl's streak of playing nine consecutive finals at the year in championship. I think it's a streak that's worth mentioning. You know, from 81 incredible. to 88. Yeah. In- in- incredible accomplishment. Incredible accomplishment, Yes. And then from 1980 to 1988, you are exactly right. Uh-huh. And then, and then, and then there was an American. The the other streak that's interesting is that there was an American in the final in every tournament throughout the 1990s, or in fact, even in the, even in 2000, the year 2000, Agassi was in the final. And I think since then we've had no Americans in the finals. So the, you know, the, there was that uh, 11 year in a row we had one American at least in the finals. And, uh, and and yet um, uh, from uh, from 2000 on, in other words, starting with 2001, no American has reached the final. In a ma- no, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm 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 making a mistake there. Agassi, I think, did. Yes, Agassi did in 2003, and James Blake. James Blake too. Yes. So Blake and Agassi reached the finals twice. They lost both, but mm-hmm. still, you know, going from 11 years in a row. Re, having one American in the final versus only two Americans in the finals since 2001 is quite a turnaround. All right, this is not a planned question, but I'm sure you will pass the test because you always, you never dodge difficult questions. Uh, talking, <laughs> talking about Serb, where would you rate Andy Roddick indoors and why didn't you think he, of course, you know, Roger Federer was his nemesis for most part of his career and then the rise of Novak Djokovic had a lot to do with it later on. But why, why did Andy Roddick didn't fare as... Uh, as well indoors. Uh, yeah, of course. Of course, this uh, this this answer may vary depending on the person. But for me, it's very clear. Uh, Roddick has as as an incredible serve. Yes, very good serve, first and second. 
both. But what followed up afterwards was not very, uh, um, was not very, how do I say this? Uh, not a one-two punch tennis? No, no, and also his preparation on his strokes, on his forehand and backhands. He had this this big elbow wine, uh, you know, wine back, and and I I just think that his preparation was too complicated or too elaborate to to be able to put the ball away, you know, indoors or pr- to prepare for the next next shot quickly or have these back and forth hard rallies for a long period of time. Uh, you you know you look at the players that we mentioned you know Edberg yes Edberg also prepared with his el- with his elbow but Edberg prepared incredibly early and he, and it and it was a very uh systematic almost an artificial practiced preparation that he could do like a machine over and over again on both sides you know Becker had a pretty simple backswing um Sampras had simple backswings on on both sides so you know these are players who who are able to you know, take the racket back and knock the next ball, even if it's coming fast back at them. And, and the same with Djokovic and uh, and Federer. Mm. Whereas uh, whereas Roddick had these um, kind of an unorthodox preparations on his ground strokes that did not do him justice following his serving indoors. Let me bring Roddick's contemporary, one of again one of my favorite players, Marat Safin. His window of excellence is much shorter because of his inconsistent career and also the injuries that plagued it. But uh, when in full flight. I think his kick serve and his overall power on the serve and his fluent ground strokes, I thought he was a very good indoors player, but again, doesn't have the resume of some of the names we mentioned. Where would you rate his indoor prowess when Safin was in full flight? Yeah, very highly. Very highly. Again, it's the same thing. His, his technique was uh, was excellent, phenomenal. Uh, on the backhand especially, short preparation. His timing was 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 very good, and his first serve was a, was a weapon. And I would rank him very high. Again, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a shame that he doesn't have a better, uh, you know, a more prominent indoor indoor court record. He should have had it. Yeah, he won three titles in Bercy. I mean, now Djokovic is the yeah. most winningest guy in Bercy as well. But Safin shared the most titles with Becker till Novak won, I think, last year uh, yes. in Bercy. Yeah. So, Mur, before we hop on to discuss some of uh, the names that have uh, showcased the field for the 2019 edition. Uh, I want to talk about the 92 season. Is there anything else you want to bring to the to the listeners and how the significance of this tournament? I know we've uh, you know weighed upon uh, quite you know with the, the evolution and the statistics and the importance, but is there anything you want to bring in in terms of reference how uh, recently a player's game uh, or win at this tournament stood out, or uh, just to elaborate on the you know on the historical significance that this event has occupied? No, I think we've uh, we've covered uh, pretty much everything, Sakib. And, and you know, it's uh, again, uh, I I personally wish that the final of the event, the last match of the year, in other words, would go back to th- being three out of five sets. Mm. And uh, I, you know, I just don't think that we will have. We, we, I, I think the memorable matches. We just counted the memorable matches. They were from the '80s and '90s. Yeah. And uh, there were a couple of five setters in 2000s. You know, Federer played Nalbandian, but the the level of tennis throughout the five sets was not at the level of these other ones. Uh, even a four set match. You know, when Agassi defeated Edberg in 1990, the second and third sets in that match I remember w- were incredibly high level. Uh, so you know, I just think that a three out of five set match is well deserving of the final of the year-ending uh, ATP Tour Finals. I just wish that it would go back to that because I'm, I'm afraid years are going to go by and we're still going to count 
1996 finals as the best uh, as the best matches in the history of uh, ATP Tour finals. No, very well said. Again, uh, uh, we we refer to the glorious past, and some people, you know, want to move to best of three even in majors. And that's going to happen, but there's always that. Uh, uh, the counter argument, but yeah, I, I just prepared some you know uh, statistics here uh, for the listeners, and uh, I chose just 92 as a random season. Of course, Becker won, so uh, it was a special uh, season as a fan. But I just looked back, uh, and my memory served correct. Jim Courier was a dominant uh, player that year. He won two majors uh, till Wimbledon. It seemed like he's not going to lose a match. He lost to Andrei Olovsky of Russia. And then he reached the semis in a, a U.S. Open, and he accumulated a record of 69 wins and five titles. And Pete Sampras, you know, he was coming into his own. He should have won the U.S. Open. He would look very good in the first set, but then Edberg played some flawless tennis. Who went, Edberg ended the year as number two. Sampras ended the year as number three. And then Becker came indoor. You know, his season was always Wimbledon and then indoors. He was a decent hardcore player, but his career has had more upside, uh, lopsided losses to the likes of you know, not journeymen, but, you know, lower-ranked players. And, you know, he would always play from the baseline and get sorted out in U.S. Open and Australian Open. But it was the indoor season where you could count on him. And the tournament finals had moved to Germany. So it just coincided for him playing his best. And he was the man to beat. And 92 was pretty significant. He won 52 matches for the year. And he won five titles. And the two titles came at the very tail end when he beat uh, Goran Ivanisevic twice in three weeks to win Bercy and then semifinals of uh, the ATP Championship in Frankfurt, which I believe has is one of the top three indoor matches that I've ever seen. It was yeah. just roulette tennis, you know, even if Savage at his best and Becker doing those, you know, shoelace diving volleys. That was the difference between the two, that Becker could volley and, you know, had a better first serve percentage in tie breaks or his aces counted more than Goran's aces. Goran would serve aces throughout the sets. So the, the point I'm trying to make is the, the tail end of the season – you feel like a broken record here that I'm saying it again, but it had so much more meaning. A guy like Becker's caliber would come alive in the last two months and nobody held it against him. Well, you didn't win a major. Of course, as a fan and of course as a follower of the sport, you always measure majors. But the weird obsession, uh, not weird, but the healthy obsession we have with the majors now started from Sampras, you know, taking over Roy Emerson and now in the Federer Nadal Djokovic era, it's taken it to a whole different level. Nothing else matters. Everything is a distant second. So Yes, exactly. And and you know, just just to make it clear to our listeners, you know, the the, the year ending ATP tour finals is still uh, it, it's it's still probably by the players themselves. Okay, at least the ones who get to participate in it. I'm sure it's still considered the biggest tournament behind the four majors. Okay. By the fans it may not be. But by the players themselves, to participate in the year-end uh, ATP Tour Finals has to be, uh, has to be the, 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 the next best accomplishment other than perhaps winning a major. Okay? But from the fans' perspective or, or, or casual watchers, probably now it stands at the at a, at a same level as uh, ATP 1000 or maybe one or two ATP 1000 tournaments may even be considered more important, like you said earlier in the, in the podcast. But uh, but so we're not denying that it's still a very important tournament. It is just not where where it was for 30 plus years. You know, if you if you're if you're considering uh, players records across the uh, across generations, uh, you have to you know, you, you have to consider the importance of the tournament and the fact that a guy like Lendl can play nine ATP Tour final final matches in a row. Is, uh, is, is, 
incredible ac- accomplishment. It would go right up there with the best streaks in tennis. No, without a doubt. That's, you know, Lendl's eight finals in New York and there's nine finals uh, at the Madison Square Garden. That's just uh, stuff of legends. So, with all, all due respect and on uh, just uh, to the past, let's talk something that's going to happen in a few days. Uh, Daniel Medvedev is someone we've discussed quite a lot in the last few months, rightfully so. And you said, you know, you want to see him do well. Uh, Post-US Open, he won in Petersburg and then he won in Shanghai. And uh, and and the Bercy loss, I mean, it could be a blessing in disguise that you know he probably could, you know, uh, maybe he's rusty coming in, but at the same time, a loss like that could serve him well. So, what do you see of him uh, as an indoor player, uh, indoor court player, and uh, how how do you measure him coming in this tournament? Is he one of the men to beat? Is he is he a legit top four in this tournament for you? Yes, he is. For for me, he is. In fact, well, I, I consider his accomplishments in the second. Uh, half of this uh, this year as one of the best uh, you know five or six months period that I've seen anybody have uh, I w- and and he's doing it as a first timer you know he's not doing it as someone who's been to the top and, and having another great great year or having a good uh, uh, six or seven month period what he's done is absolutely incredible what happened in Bercy should have happened a lot earlier if if this was a normal situation okay you know the, the normal in quote in, in quotation marks in other words you know w- what he did is superhuman almost the fact that uh, he didn't suffer uh, you know any uh, early upsets prior to Bercy to me is what confirms him as a newcomer into the elite of tennis so yes at this point because of the because of what he's been able to accomplish even after US Open I'm putting him right up there as, uh, you know, right as, as, as one of the top four. And, uh, and I do expect him to do well here. Uh, and, and I do believe that Medvedev should be, uh, should be the biggest threat to, to big three. I mean, he's, he's proven it. He did, it's not just one tournament, two tournaments. It's been a few months now if he stays healthy, you know. But uh, I do consider him to be a major threat in this tournament. Yes. Okay. And his rivalry with Steph Sitsipas uh, is the talk of the town because uh, the two are clearly not friends, and I think the sport can use this kind of edginess, which has been missing in you know the big three era, where you know there has been instances here and there, but it's usually been clouded with pure tennis and you know respect. So one, uh, are you excited with this the prospect of Sitsipas and Medvedev exchanging at the bigger stages? And secondly, from the coach's corner point of view, what does Sitsipas have to do? He's played some spectacular sets. But he hasn't delivered the knockout punch to seal the match. So what is uh, what is the missing link here for the Greeks' uh, uh, game plan against his Russian opponent, where he's fallen short five times, I believe now. Yeah, this it's it's, it's a very tough matchup for Sitsipas. But but going to your early earlier question, you know, am I am I excited for this matchup? Yes, I am. If they, if both of them play well, it will be great. And personally, I don't think that their previous. Uh, you know, uh, conflict with each other will play a role. I think both of them will walk out on the court focused on the match rather than that. Now, if there's an incident that takes place during the match, which then brings, you know, brings, brings the sourness back into play, then yes, there, we, there could be some antics. But I don't expect, you know, I don't expect the two players to walk out to the court, uh, you know, side-looking each other and, and taunting each other or anything like that. I think they're going to go out and play, uh, they're going to be focused on their tennis matches. So I'm more excited... I'm certainly, per, you know, on a personal level, more excited from the, from the tennis angle rather than 
the you know the 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 history outside the court type of angle, but uh, but it, the, you know going to the matchup, it's a very tough matchup for Sitsipas because Medvedev plays the way Medvedev takes the ball doesn't leave Sitsipas with too much time to set up his game. You know we like the fact that Sitsipas is an attacker. You know he and when I say attacker, I don't mean a serving volley necessarily. Although he's done it once in a while, but Sitsipas is not afraid to come to the net. He will set the point up with the intention of approaching the net. And when he gets a short ball, he doesn't shy away from coming to the net. So it is part of his A plan to, uh, you know, plan A, in other words, to come in on short balls or attack or put pressure on his opponent, uh, take the balls early. And the problem when he's facing Medvedev is that Medvedev takes his balls early and sends them back flat and low. And this, this plays against Tsitsipas, who likes to wind down on his shots and if you notice, what Tsitsipas will do is he, after he hits a pretty good shot from the baseline, he will immediately move a little bit to the left of the center hash mark, and he will expect that next ball to come towards his backhand where he can run around and hit his big forehand. But his preparation, his, his, his backswing is, is, is not, you know, it's quite significant. It's a significant backswing. It's a, it's a large backswing. And Medvedev's patterns and play doesn't allow him to set up this type of play that he, he this type of pattern that he likes to utilize during the points. So are you saying so a, if I'm a, understanding this correctly? So if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, Medvedev doesn't have to play his best to beat Tsitsipas because the game matches up to his strengths. He could, what, what I'm trying to say is yes. he can still fire below his best and make mistakes and still be in the match, whereas Tsitsipas has to play pretty much a very, uh, not a perfect match, but everything has to execute to, you know, uh, at the highest levels of margins uh, to come out ahead. Yeah, no, no, you are pretty close, but not exactly. I would have, I would say that Medvedev would have to play at his highest level only if Tsitsipas is able to bring it, bring, bring the game in, bring his game in. In other words, he starts out executing his plan A, and actually in the first couple of games, two or three games, where Medvedev plays that pattern that he thinks is going to be successful for him, Tsitsipas is able to pull, pull off two or three incredible shots and win those points. And now the pressure is on Medvedev to come up with something more. Then he would have to come up with more. But under regular, under normal circumstances, if they, in, in these baseline rallies, uh, patterns, I see Medvedev having an advantage. And yes, I don't think he has to play his best to beat Tsitsipas, unless mm. Tsitsipas does something out of the ordinary. Would you compare Tsitsipas' dilemma, of course, it's very early years, against Medvedev to something that mid-career Becker struggled, struggled against a mid-career Agassi? When, you know, Agassi won those eight matches. Becker is a darn good player, but there was no reason he should have lost anyone eight matches in a row. Or you think that was a different matchup? Yeah. No, no, I, th- I think you can compare the two because Agassi also takes the ball early. And, and Agassi also did not give his opponent time to prepare. Uh, the only difference there, I would say, that Tsitsipas, of course, in his young years, we're, we're going to since we're comparing it to Boris's younger years, I would say that Tsitsipas is slightly more consistent than Boris's younger years. In other words, when you pinned Boris, uh, when you pinned Becker in the uh, on the baseline in his younger years, he would eventually make a mistake. You know, he would not be able to have longer rallies or or maybe create chances. Uh, by playing two or three shots, but rather just go for the big winner, perhaps. But uh, whereas Tsitsipas is able to um, is able to rally a little bit more. In other words, he can extend the rally a little bit more. And if he misses his chance on the third or fourth shot to set the ball up and 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 come in or do his thing with the, with the forehand, 
he might be able to get back into rally and do it try it again on the 12th or 13th shot hmm. but uh, but the general idea of what you're mentioning yes it, it is comparable okay and i want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago when in response to my question that we could see some maybe you know antics or tantrums uh, but i think uh, you're right uh, i think there's a fiery you know, element to sitsipas or anyone who's reached you know such heights at a very young age i think he himself doesn't like to lose and i'm sure this uh, rivalry and the ascendance of medvedev in the second half of the season has shown a new reality here sitsipas is 0 and 5 he's not comfortable losing and he i think he wants badly to flip this uh, turn around in his favor at least get a win but at the same time i don't i don't expect him to show any antics if he keeps losing because i think there's so much pride if you can beat the guy you know don't be uh, you know you know don't don't misbehave there and i think similarly uh Sitsipas has a small edge over Zverev because Zverev tennis has taken a slight nosedive and Sitsipas has been on the rise and they have also mouthed off each other in the press room and on the court Sitsipas has gotten the better of Zverev in the last few outings and Zverev is at the crossroads how to figure out uh crossroads is a strong word but you know he wants to figure out a way to start winning these matches so the three of them are, to me form a very interesting trifecta and they are all in Rafa Nadal's group so i think it's uh, if Nadal's healthy and is healthy enough to play uh, this group is up for grabs yes i agree with you that's a great group and and here is another thing to keep in mind too with, with Medvedev and Tsitsipas is that they've only played indoor one time so far and it was a very close match it went 6-3 in the third but it was a close match Medvedev won so this is not a match that uh, that that Tsitsipas uh, is going to go into believing that he's going to lose again it, it it is a it is a bad matchup but i think he can you know he can work his way out and also let's see how uh, how medvedev's form is after that loss in paris i mean he you know i did say earlier that uh, that uh, it's phenomenal that he went that far without you know losing early and that that should have happened earlier so i don't i, I don't expect that to stop him but uh, but let's see how you know how he plays in his first match a lot of well um, actually who is who are who are the is who's medvedev's opponent in his first match do you know Uh, I believe uh, Medvedev is uh, in Nadal's group, so Nadal is going to play Sasha Zverev. Medvedev and Tsitsipas will open. Yeah, see that if, since they're the opening match, that's going to be interesting actually to watch. Hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll be interested. I'll be interested to see how that goes. And um, because um, you see Medvedev and Tsitsipas, I believe this is the first time you know they're going to play in in the in the O2 Arena. No, this will be a very interesting match. I still favor Medvedev. but uh, but you're right yes and this group just like you said uh hoping that uh you know rafa is uh, is healthy would, would promises some uh, some very good matches and nobody here is really uh, a super attacking player sitsipas is the closest to super attacking player that we have uh out of the four mm. and uh, yeah we're going to see some uh, some some very interesting matches here i i, I really wonder I really wonder about Zverev too. I mean, he won the tournament last year. So, you know, what what Zverev will we see at this tournament? I guess we'll find out very soon. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting and I I have a feeling that this tournament uh can, you know, make up for last few editions of the World Tour final where which was played by a lot of one-sided matches. I feel this edition has potential of some 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 crisp matches and some competitive uh, outcomes. Uh so let's uh conclude this conversation uh Uh, with a big match that's going to happen on Tuesday it's uh, Federer Djokovic uh, i think it's going to be Tuesday the top two usually the two winners of the first match and i'm again it's a bold prediction i i think both can win the first match on sunday 
I think then they'll play on Tuesday. And Federer has got, gotten the better of Djokovic at the round-robin stage, but then he has lost Novak in the final in 2012 and 2015, and in 2014 he didn't play. So we know, you know, they're really familiar with each other. Uh, they played a great indoor match in Bercy last year, but now they haven't played since the f- uh, famous 2019 Wimbledon final. So uh, preview that match for us, uh, what you have seen in Basel and what you've seen in Bercy this Sunday. Yes, I I would like to see how they play on Sunday before really previewing the, the match on, on Tuesday. But w- one thing is for sure, Djokovic will go out to the court being being the favorite on paper. I mean, it, 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 clearly he should be the favorite. He's, he's got a... He's got an edge over Roger at at the O2 Arena in in the in the um, in the ATP World Tour Championships and also I mean ATP Finals and and also he's got an edge over him over the last uh, five or six years on 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 most of the matches on big stage. So I would I'm going to favor Djokovic in that match, but I would like to see how they each come out on uh, on Sunday and perform. And, and then and then go from there because you know Roger took last week off so let's see how he plays against team I'm going to assume that uh, he, he you know the first set against team is going to tell us a lot and uh, and and also and one other thing that I would like to see is how Berrettini does against Djokovic you know Berrettini is not going to be necessarily an easy opponent he he can flatten out the ball and t- and, and and hit balls back early if Berrettini mentally. Uh, you know, goes out to the court with the belief that he can do well in this tournament, then uh, then he's he's also a very dangerous player. But just to, going back to your question, I'm going to put Djokovic, the favorite, the clear favorite on pa- on paper, mm-hmm. and then and then we're going to have to see how how uh, Federer's first serve goes. I mean, he's going to need his first serves. I mean, Federer has made a career bouncing back uh, from difficult, heartbreaking situations. But uh, do you think that there's going to be some scar tissue from the Wimbledon match? If say Federer is serving for a set against Djokovic, or you know, again, all speculation, but uh, he's I don't he, think so. He's probably shaken it off, but uh, any any residue of that match? I, I don't think so. I, this is a different match. Federer has shown many times he shakes things off very quickly. He's had this type of disappointment before in the late 2000s and early 2010s, where he lost important matches from match point up, or or one game away from winning the match. And then he comes back in 2012 and, you know, has a good year, goes up to number one. Then same thing, similar things happen afterwards. And then he comes back in in 2017 as a good season. Uh, I think, you know, this is one area that, uh, in my opinion, Roger has zero concern in his head. Hi, Mert. So I think we covered quite a lot. Uh, thanks for doing this. It was as usual. I enjoyed it. Hopefully anyone who tunes in uh, enjoys your hist- historical references on how the tournament has evolved and some of the insights on what makes a great one-two punch, why Andy Roddick didn't play. So we covered, you know, quite quite a lot here. Novak Djokovic is the man to be. The tournament starts Sunday, four days, hopefully, from when the podcast is released. Segment two will be with Matt Zemek, where we'll be talking about Ash Barty and maybe even cover upon Dominic Team's resurgence as a hardcore player. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second segment uh, of the show. Matt Zemek is uh, in the house and... Uh, we have a lot of WTA action uh, to talk. Ash Barty has been victorious of the year in championships. On that note, let me bring Matt back to the podcast. Hey, Matt. Hey. So, I, I know uh, we did a mini preview of this, and uh, you've written for Tennis with an Accent uh, for Ash Barty's win. Uh, and we, we also talked about like how Barty is one of the three marketable new stars on the WTA side. So let's uh, uh, wrap this around with the season finale. 
Uh, one, was this win, you know, on the card for you? Was she one of the favorites given how slow the surface was? And uh, and we also find out this is a pretty slow surface uh, to play on. But overall, uh, what does this kind of a win do to her credentials with different surfaces uh, that are on offer for the WTA? Well, you know, it's a it's a complicated question, Sakib. It has to be picked apart into several different strands or components. We we have to, you know, we can first off, Barty deserves an enormous amount of credit because a lot of people doubted her ability to stay at the very top and comport herself in terms, not in terms, I'm not talking about mannerisms. I'm talking about, you know, results and just doing well on a consistent basis. A lot of people doubted that she could be a steady, strong player at the very top of the women's game. And at least in the the remainder of 2019, after she attained a world number one, she has acted like a world number one. Uh, And when I say that we need to keep, Keep in mind that you know this is the the modern WTA is not like the 1980s or the 1990s in which you had dominant number one players who would stay at number one for several years and would win gobs of big titles. This is not Chris and Martina. It's not Steffi and Monica Seles. This is a different era, and we need to only look at 2017 and 2018 for examples. Uh, you know, it's also not the Serena Williams golden age anymore you know as soon as she became a mom that ushered in a different era of women's tennis so the number ones now in a you know after serena became a mom number ones aren't these transcendently dominant players they are like simona halep who was the world the year-end world number one in 2017 and 2018 you know not winning three majors not making you know four major semifinals and three major finals in a year and winning, you know, five or six titles. Number ones in a right now in 2018, 2019 aren't like that on the WTA tour. You know, we see the balance, we see the parity, we see the depth, you know, where results basically turn over. Uh, uh, You know, there's one group of players in one tournament and then there's a very different group of players, you know, playing for the title at the next big tournament. And it it has continued that way throughout 2019 and it was true pretty much through the to the end so we shouldn't expect a number one wta player today in this new era after serena williams motherhood should not expect a number one player to be dominant the way serena was or to be dominant other great number one players were you 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 pick your spots you you know if you can you're going to go through some bad cycles but if you resurface every few months winning an important tournament or going very deep in a tournament that's basically a number one standard so let's like let's apply compare Barty's 2019 to Halep's 2018 you know went deep in a lot of tournaments made a lot of semifinals you know but didn't win a ton but but picked off a few important events won a lot of matches and basically was better than her peers you know we're measuring this against peers not against the historical standards of Chris, Martina, Steffi, Monica, and Serena. So, so we need to understand that about Barty. And now the other main point I want to emphasize, Sakib, on a different level is that the Shenzhen uh, WTA finals were a disaster. Uh, and, and we were all hoping, we meaning people who follow global tennis year to year, we were hoping that the Shenzhen court would be um, a lot faster than the 
the Singapore court, and yet it seems as though it was not only the same court, it, may, it might actually have been worse. And uh, I recall looking on Twitter, uh, Reem Abulel, uh dug up a quote from Belinda Bencic, who retired from her semifinal against Alina Svitolina at the WTA finals. And, and Bencic just said, this court isn't just, it's not just that the court's slow, but it's gritty. So it's hard to move your feet, your get, get stuck. And that's just absolutely terrible for joints and knees and uh, the body parts that need to be able to move fluidly on a court. Why is tennis creating courts that make it easier for players to get injured? Not just the slow quality of the court, but the gritty quality of the court. I think it was compared to sand by some players. Um, so how can tennis be this bad? How can tennis be this irresponsible? And so we're left with the reality that, you know, as much as I've just given Barty lavish and substantial credit because she deserves every bit of it, we also have to acknowledge that this was an injury depleted tournament. Uh, you had either a retirement or a replacement player, an alternate uh, involved in a match uh, every day of the tournament, starting with day three. You know, there the, the were the first two matches, uh, the matches on the first two days. And then I think from Tuesday onward, you either had a retirement or a replacement player playing in a match. That That is just a terrible look for the WTA and for tennis at large. And so to say that this proves something extra about Barty, you can't really say that. You know, she didn't play an in-form Naomi Osaka. She didn't play an in-form Bianca Andrescu. I think those were the two players most people look to as the likely uh, participants in a championship match. And we didn't really get to test that because of injuries. You know, it wasn't a, a verdict on anyone's tennis. This was a product of injuries. So. You know, so it, it's an it's a it's an uncomfortable reality, Sakib. And w when we look to 2020 on the WTA tour, it sets up a situation where you know if Barty loses to Osaka or Andrescu, the Barty skeptics are going to be out in force, saying, "See, see, when they were healthy, they were better than Barty." But it goes back to that original point, Sakib, that we shouldn't expect Barty or any world number one on the WTA tour to be a dominant. Steffi or Monica or Martina or Chris or Serena like number one. It's a different context. And that is the point we really have to absorb here. No, I think, Matt, uh, you bring up some interesting uh, observations uh, there. And uh, so you think uh, uh, if the, the lack of a dominant in number one, isn't this something similar to the gap between the Sampras years and the Federer years when Hewitt? Uh, was there? He was uh, clearly the best player, but he wasn't wasn't dominating the majors. Is that a fair reference? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I I would I would say that you know the the modern WTA tour of 2019 is a lot better than the ATP tour in that 1997 to 2003 window that you're referring to. But but in terms of the specific comparison of number one players. That comparison is very apt, that you didn't see a, a world number one just absolutely take over anything and everything in the sport. Uh, you know, Agassi did have an extremely strong 1999 season. Uh, and, and, you know, Sampras was still making, you know, the, the, the finals of important tournaments. But in terms of like dominating the whole season, 
you know, the way we began to see with Federer in 2004, 2005, 2006, Djokovic in, in 2011, 2015, Nadal 2008, 2010, 2013. Yeah, it's a different it's a different paradigm. So, yes, back then with Leighton Hewitt, Marcelo Rios, you know, other players who had, you know, shorter terms as world number one, they weren't crushing the tour, but they were better than their peers, which is really just, you know, the other way you get to being world number one. We shouldn't think that being world number one means you have to set a standard akin to the big three for men's tennis or Serena for women's tennis. So, yes, that is an excellent point and it holds. And I would like to add uh, just another thought, what you said, uh, and it's, it's no secret uh, that uh, the two uh, most dominant players, at least, uh, who coming into the world, I mean, the year in championships, uh, Bianca Andrescu and Naomi Osaka, both uh, got physically compromised and uh, didn't finish the tournament. But at the same time, I think winning a tournament and uh, the single feed of coming through a field is also a function of, you know, all things being equal. And uh, like you said, uh, uh, Ash Barty does deserve full credit because she also had to deal with the same grittiness of the surface. It's very unfortunate that uh, a lot of reserves were used for this tournament and uh, WTA should look into improving the surface. But at the same time, uh, I slightly disagree. It's also similar to the blue clay in Madrid. It wasn't a great surface, but then Federer and Birdie create the final. So what's out there is for everyone and then whoever handled it better that week. And then you, you, were, you, know, you gave a lot of props to Ash Barty. So there is, there is you know, no no disclaimer there for me or no asterisk in, in her win. Uh, not that you said it, but uh, if she has to beat Bianca and Naomi next year, so be it. But uh, And if she even loses to them, I don't think we should go back to this week as, okay, you know, they didn't make it and because she still had to play all five matches and come through. That's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. So let's uh, quickly bring in you uh, here for Dominic Team, uh, because me and uh, Matt, if, uh, Mert, if you listen to this part of the podcast, you've listened to us talking about 60 plus minutes of uh, ATP World Tour Finals evolution and the way this tournament is currently and some of the key players. Uh, I even said uh, Djokovic, Federer can happen on Tuesday, provided they both win their favorites on their Sunday matches. But a part of me still believes the way Dominic team has played Federer, of course, Indian Wells and Madrid are no uh, benchmark for the O2 arena. But I still think, uh, as much as I think Federer is a favorite, that match can go either way. So let's talk about team resurgence that you have captured through Tennis with an Axe and written columns over the year. Uh, how he's established and he's grown into a hardcore player, be it outdoor or indoor. So uh, will you be surprised if team comes out in that match as a winner? I don't think team will be intimidated by Federer. I think definitely that match could go either way. I would not be shocked uh, if team won it. Uh, I would, I would give Federer a slight edge, but I would hardly be shocked at all if team won it. And I think team has a very legitimate chance of advancing through to the semifinals. The thing that is worth emphasizing with team is not just that he has become a better hardcore player, but you're now seeing him win on hard courts in different contexts. You know, he played reasonably well in Shanghai, ran into a very in-form Matteo Berrettini in the quarterfinals. Otherwise, he would have been in the semis, uh, and, you know, he would have played Zverev for a chance to meet Medvedev in the final. You know, he had, he had a decent Shanghai tournament. He did not look uh, overwhelmed on the fast courts of Shanghai, uh, unlike previous years. And then he wins Vienna, which is uh, an in, you know an indoor hard court, 
So you're, it's not just, he, he's not just playing on the slow outdoor hard courts of Indian Wells, where he won his title, his master's title. He's now doing it uh, on Shanghai he, and he's doing it on indoor hard courts. So that certainly bodes well for him heading into London and then beyond that uh, to Australia. And I just have to reiterate that it was a real, a real shame that we didn't get to see team healthy at the U.S. Open because that was a tournament where he, a semifinal berth was waiting for him, uh, you know, based on his improved hardcore credentials. Uh, but his body betrayed him, you know, just just much as Djokovic's body betrayed him in New York, Federer's body betrayed him in New York. But uh, now we get to see, you know, this this tournament is certainly important. If team makes the semis. In, at the ATP Finals, it, it represents a natural springboard to Australia, which, which is going to be a huge tournament for him because, as I've written during the year at TennisAccent.com, if team can start making some hard-court semis, uh, uh, hard-court major semis, you know that is really the gateway for him to have the kind of career that Stan Wawrinka has had. I'm not saying that team's going to win a major next year. Uh, I wouldn't predict that. but if he can start making some hardcourt major semifinals in 2020, then, you know, as the 2020s go along and team gets to be 28, 29 years old, you know, in a few years, uh, and uh, Nadal gets to 36, 37 years of age, and Djokovic gets to 35, 36 years of age, you know, that is going to be the time, I think, when team can win a couple majors and very possibly, if he continues to build on hard courts, you know, he can win on clay and hard court. And that is the Stan Favrenka mixture, winning in Roland Garros and Australia and the U.S. Open to get himself into the Tennis Hall of Fame. So if we're looking at the big picture of Dominic Team's career, he needs to start making some hard court major semis in 2020. If he can do that, then he will set himself up in like 2023 2024 to cash in at the majors and and uh, transform the way we regard his career okay so well said and uh, let's wrap this uh, segment up with uh, the four uh, players from generation nick as our good friend andrew burton would classify so the field is definitely looking a little younger this year i don't have the real stats but uh, between sitsipas Zverev. Medvedev and Berrettini, you have four young guys, and out of this, only Zverev is coming to the party for the second time. The other three are making their debut. So does this kind of a feel, uh, you know, of course, uh, has Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, Rafa Nadal, the legends are there. But uh, in terms of uh, something we do for tennis acts and written columns, pre-majors, who has the most to prove? I know I'm going to put you on the spot. Out of these four guys, uh, who do you think is one or two guys who have a lot to prove? or uh, if you want to take that question, or who has the least to prove, because you can go the other way, because this is the first time. So out of those four names, who do you want to talk about? Well, hey, let's do let's do both. Let's start with who has the least to prove. I would say it's Stefano Tsitsipas, just because you know Zverev has gone through a cycle where he won this tournament a year ago and then you know fell off the face of the planet and then, you know, has, has begun to revive his game. Um, you know, there, there is more scrutiny on Zverev going into London than Tsitsipas. I mean, Tsitsipas has, you know, certainly exceeded expectations this year. Um, and he, you know, he beat Djokovic in Shanghai. 
So, you know, that kind of affirmed the fact that, hey, I'm here to stay. I can play with the big boys, but it's my first ATP final. So if it doesn't happen to fall just right, it, it's no big deal. I, I go to Australia with plenty of confidence, you know, and, and I'm going to try to become better at the majors this year uh, in 2020. That's going to be Sitsipas's focus. I think the, per, the player with the most approved is not Zverev because he's won this. You know, Zverev's, Zverev's next big proving ground is Australia. Zverev has to figure out the best of five beast at the majors. I mean, that that's where his career is going to change for the better. If it does, it's going to be by figuring out five set tennis. The person with the most to prove at the ATP finals is Danil Medvedev. You know, he's been on this amazing run, but now he goes against only the elite players on the ATP tour. And so if, if he succeeds here, well, then the hype train is just going to continue to you know, escalate heading into Melbourne in January. But if he gets punched in the teeth, it could create fresh doubts for the coming season. And we all might revise what we think about Medvedev. And it's worth noting that as hugely impressive as, as Medvedev has been, and no, no one's trying to take away anything from what he has done. I'm not trying to take away from what he's done. It's been absolutely phenomenal, um, you know, being able to do this nearly every week on tour for nearly the whole second half of the season. It's phenomenal. But nevertheless, this was a half of a season. And the, 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 the next step from half a season is a whole season. And so that, that remains to be seen with Medvedev in terms of how he fares over a block of 12 months rather than just five. So this ATP finals is going to determine, you know, how 2020 sets up for Medvedev. Is he is does he is he going to be refueled after his early loss in Bercy or is this going to be a, a time when he runs out of imagination and ideas? And while I don't know what this will mean for 2020 in terms of how he's actually going to perform, it certainly could affect perception and it certainly could affect his level of belief going into Melbourne when really outside of the big three, there is no question he is going to be seen as the ultimate challenger to the big three at the majors. All right. So Matt, I think we covered quite a lot here and uh, hopefully everyone who tunes in to listen to this podcast will enjoy uh, the conversations uh, that led to this episode and, uh, and the material that was covered and feel free to drop a disagreement or even a retweet if you endorse something and let's keep the conversation going at Tennis with an Action. More coverage this week coming from our unit, and Matt can talk about what's in store for the written content. I know he's a busy man writing uh, and covering more college football, but tennis never takes a backseat, especially when there's a big tournament, and uh, Matt Zemek uh, will be on it. But let me put Matt on the spot once again if there's anything in store here. Oh, well, we're going to wrap up this week um, the, so, several WTA players' seasons at TennisAccent.com, and then we're going to load up with ATP Finals coverage as well in, in the coming week. All right, on that note, it's Sakib and Matt signing off. We'll be back with another episode uh, in a week's time. Uh, thanks for listening, and bye for now.